this week my mind has just been spinning on all the ramifications of what we are about to get into in Revelation 17 and 18. So I'm going to pray for a moment that the Lord will uh, help keep my thoughts straight or we could be here for hours. Lord, help me stick to your word and help me to speak what you desire for us to study and know and be aware of this morning. I, I got, Father, so many rabbit trails in my head right now, it's, it's frightening. And so I just pray that you will make everything coalesce into one focus. Help us walk out of here with clarity and understanding, even as an introduction to Revelation 17. But Father, more than that, I pray for clarity in our world. I pray for discernment here at the end of the age. I pray that you will open our eyes and bring truly the revelation of Jesus and the revelation of these things into our understanding so that we can grasp it in soul and in spirit. And help me, Father, just to listen. In fact, Lord, would you, would you give us all an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns, And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I gave you a statistic last Sunday, a real positive statistic about the fact that Christianity in America actually is growing, not shrinking. Those are hard to come by, it seems like, surveys like that that actually give a positive view of what's taking place in the world or in our culture. But there's another stat that just came out this week, literally on Tuesday. uh, Pew Research came out with a new poll that tells us more than half of Americans back a stronger role of religion in society, while just 18% oppose it. All right. Couple that with the stats from last week, and that's good news, right? Hold on to your clipboard there, Plucky the Polster. (laughs) Of those who consider themselves politically conservative, the number who would like to see a stronger role of religion in American society is 71%. Among liberals, 29%. Of the over 50 crowd... 61% would prefer more religion in American society. Of those under 30, it drops to 39%. Now, those are telling statistics of some very broad differences between conservatives and liberals and over 50 and and under. And I got to tell you, I'm with liberals and the under 30 crowd on this one. 
I wholeheartedly agree that we don't need more religion in America. We need more Jesus. And this is something we've got to become clear on. When we think about religion, the reality is it is far more broad-based. At least I can speak for myself, far more broad-based than even I have thought before. The Bible doesn't end with the revelation of the religion of God. It ends with the revelation of Jesus Christ. However, the increase of religion is a clear and certain sign that we are at the end of the end, the last of the last days. The increase of religion. Religion in the world is increasing. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And he speaks even about during the time of tribulation that false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Revelation 17 is a religious chapter. In it we see the the final coexistent ecumenical earth and we see the final crushing of religion. This is what Revelation 17 is about. Now, before we even get to Revelation 17 this morning, we need to back up and see if we can get a a, a biblical view and a biblical understanding of religion, of what we're really talking about here. The word religion shows up just six times in the entire Bible. Six times. Interesting. Six is the number of man. That's the number of times we see the word religion. And the first two simply refer to Judaism as a religious system. They're they're referred to in Acts chapter 25, verse 19. And Acts chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. And it's just a reference to uh, our religious faith, our Jewish religious faith, as Paul is talking and as others are, are, are sharing. So in those couple of chapters, the word is used. But again, it's just simply the religious system of Judaism. And the Greek word for religion, you might want to jot this down, is threskia. That's T-H-R-E-S-K-E-I-A, if you're transliterating it. Threskia. Threskia specifically and literally means the external framework. External framework, or the formality of faith or devotion. Now, some have said the word religion is literally to bind up. I can't find that anywhere. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that in a number of sermons. Religion is to bind up. Well, maybe in the same way that a, a, a home is framed, and so the structure, you know, the framing holds up the structure, perhaps. But binding isn't, that's not the, 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 the literal definition that I've, that I've found here. And I looked pretty exhaustively, so if if anyone has seen Bind Up somewhere else, please let me know where that is, because I can't find it. What I do find is the external framework. And so religion simply has to do with that which is outwardly observed through ceremony, as opposed to inward faith and hope and love, which is what compels a disciple. The problem the Pharisees had, and if you'd like to, keep your finger there in Revelation 17. Turn back to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. The problem the the Pharisees had is that they left the internal for the external. 
Now, I'll tell you something. The external is not necessarily a bad thing. The external can reveal what's going on in the internal. When we meet to worship, when we gather, we do things like we take communion or we baptize people. Those are rituals, you realize. Those are ceremony. Those are outward framework of an inward faith. But the problem is when we focus on the outward framework and the inward faith begins to shrivel and die. And that's what had happened with the Pharisees as Jesus goes after them. He spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, Matthew 23, verse 1, saying the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, and do not do according to their deeds. (laughs) For they say things and do not do them. Jesus is very clear. The law is not the problem. The interpretation and the behavior is the problem. The Pharisees and what they're doing is the problem. Don't be like them, but clearly listen to them because if they're teaching the law, that's not a bad thing. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. And they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, or master or teacher is is a translation of that. For one is your leader, one is your master, that is Christ, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. If you skip down to verse 27, Jesus launches into the woes of the Pharisees. And these woes are not threats. They're brokenheartedness. It's, oi, Pharisees. Oh, Pharisees. No, Pharisees. And he says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that was the problem. The Pharisees were heavy on the externals, light on the inner man. Light on what it meant to truly be in a... Well, a relationship with God. See, that's what happens when religion becomes a cheap imitation of what God is really looking for. You want to know what God is really looking for? I think you know, but let's be clear this morning. God is looking for one thing, which is what? Children. A family. Closeness. Relationship. What does God want from me? You. He wants you. That's been the point from the very beginning. God is not interested in engaging you in religion for the sake of religion. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants you to walk with Him and talk with Him and be with Him and live life with Him. Now what's tricky is that while a rooted inner faith will always bear outward fruits... So someone in love with Jesus, following Jesus, they're naturally going to bear fruit for Jesus. They're naturally going to do things. They're going to go to church. Because, hey, Jesus is talked about there. I want to be there. 
They're going to live that lifestyle because they love Him and it'll flow out from the inner faith. But the tricky thing is, outward ritualistic religion can also appear fruitful for a time. It can grow, it can expand, it can enlarge, and it can appear fruitful and yet still have no internal root. How does that work? Well, it's propped up by its rituals and customs and traditions. Religion. When religion becomes the thing above and over the relationship you have with Jesus, it can last, it can expand, it can be built upon, but the thing that builds it is tradition and observances and ceremony and ritual. Some of you come out of that. Well, I think all of us do to some degree. Come out of a life where where we had certain things that we did and the doing of those things sometimes felt like it was enough. It satisfied the itch, at least for the moment. You know what I call that? I call that social club faith. We meet, the club does the thing the club does. I get my sense of club and then I'm off doing something else. Man, join the Kiwanis if you want that. That's religion. Now, I, I said there were just two Jewish references in the Bible using the word religion, just speaking of the religious system of Judaism, but the word religion appears four more times, and I want you to see these quickly. So turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians, chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's right in that little set. Colossians, chapter 2. Paul goes after religion and the threat that it truly holds and the negative aspect of it using the word twice here in this passage Colossians 2 verse 18 watch this let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels the word worship is threskia religion the religion of angels. It's not because it's a religion belonging to angels, but it's the idea of a religious system based on angelic things, focused on angels. Okay? Ritual and tradition and worship about the angels rather than about the Lord Jesus. So let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the religion of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Godly growth, not human traditional growth. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made threskia, religion, and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but note this, get this, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Religious observance will never strengthen you against flesh. See, religious observance, I can go to church and, and do my hour of religious observance a week. 
And then I can live in the flesh all week long because the one has nothing to do with the other. Religion does not strengthen me against fleshly indulgence. It just takes up an hour of time. What strengthens me against fleshly indulgence is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I've used my, my wife as example many times in my relationship with Cheryl. There are things that have changed in me because I love her. Because I want to please her. Yesterday was an example of this. It's been a crazy week. And we, we have my, my daughter and son-in-law and my grandkids have, have moved in. They're staying with us for the next few weeks, which is fantastic. It's grandchildren time. I mean, I'm, I'm loving it. But it was a crazy day and all kinds of business. We got Chinese food last night. And it was all over the counter. And I came out of our room and Cheryl was downstairs helping out with the grandkids. And I came out of our room and the kitchen was a complete disaster. Now, Rick of 20 years ago would have seen the disaster, turned right around and went back into the room and pretended like I never saw it. <laughs> I would have waited till I heard clinking and clanking in the kitchen long enough to know that most of the job was done. And then I would come out and offer to help. <laughs> Last night I went in there, I cleaned the whole thing, I put all the dishes in the dishwasher. By the time Cheryl was upstairs, the kitchen was perfectly clean. Can we get an amen? Okay, so... (laughs) I tell you that for one reason. Cheryl has changed me. And not because of the religious observance of our marriage, but because I love her. And I didn't want her to come upstairs to a disaster. That's a a, a lame, a a weak, a a, a slim example compared to the love of Christ and how it changes my fleshly desires. I don't want to just go back in the bedroom and pretend I didn't see it happen. You know, when I love Jesus, suddenly I want to please Him. I want to do things for Him. And my life begins to change. And religion can't do that. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why he says, religion is back in verse 19, not holding fast to the head. Who is Christ? Man, you hold fast to Christ... And fleshly indulgence seems to be a thing you really don't care much for when you're focused on Jesus. And so twice, Paul hammers religion, the self-abasement and religion of angels and self-made religion. Paul says, don't, don't let that be your thing. It's not about the religion, it's about the relationship. How many times have we said that in 15 years? It's not religion, it's relationship. It's not religion, it's relationship. Because that's what it's all about. James, Yaakov, his actual name, in the book of James in our Bibles, chapter 1, says the final two, uses the final couple of usages of the word religion, specifically in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 26. And you can turn there, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you. James says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion, Thraskia, is worthless. And then he says, interesting, pure and undefiled Thraskia. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. So guess what? There is a religion that's legit. There is a religion that is pure and undefiled. And Yaakov describes it for us. He says it is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is pure and undefiled religion. Why? (laughs) What's that about? To visit widows and orphans in their distress Do you know that 
God voices his concern for orphans and for widows 27 times in the Bible. You think it may be important to him that widows are cared for and looked after, that orphans are rescued and saved and fed and loved and nurtured and brought into family. Widows and orphans. Listen, to help the helpless is pure religion. That's pure religion. Because in their distress, they can't do anything for you. When you help the widow or the orphan in their distress, what you're doing is doing something for someone that cannot return payment. And so you know what that is? Unconditional love. That's pure and undefiled religion. That's a religion that's based on a deeper relationship. A caring, a love, an affection that is born out of a relationship with God. To keep oneself unstained from the world, that's pure religion because guess what? It's not exploitable. It's not moved one way or direction. It's not moved, it's not manipulated by personal or societal pressures. It doesn't flow with the tides of culture. It's focused on what does God say? What does Jesus desire? What is His will? And Jesus is the perfect example of one who was never manipulated by the masses. His life, his lifestyle was one of pure, devoted religion. Pure and undefiled. Jesus was never manipulated. Think about that. When the people began to try to take him by force, to make him king, what did he do? He withdrew to the mountain, John chapter 6, verse 15 tells us. He withdrew to the mountain. He got out of there when they were trying to force his hand. Because Jesus would not be manipulated. Even when his own brothers taunted him. Because they didn't believe in him. They said, go on up to Jerusalem for the feast of Sukkot. Show yourself there. Promote your messianic ministry if you're the Messiah. You know what Jesus said? John chapter 7 verse 6. My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. I love that. It's not my time, but you know what, bros? Right now is your time to believe or to reject. you got to deal with that. When Peter tried to deter Jesus from going up to Jerusalem, and this time not for a promo tour, no, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to suffer and die and rise again on the third day. And Peter said, this shall never happen to you, Lord. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew 16, 23, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's interest, and that's religion. See, religion can be manipulative. It can be exploitive. It can be humanistic. And that's why we keep talking about a relationship. A relationship. 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message we heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And I ask you, is that not what we all want in a relationship Honesty, clarity, openness, truth. Now, I'm not saying that's what we always get in a relationship. I'm not even saying that's how we always act in a relationship. 
Sometimes we are withholding things from one another. Sometimes we do manipulate for ourselves when that human selfishness comes out. But Jesus offers this this walking in the light relationship. No hidden agendas. You want to know what God's up to? Here you go. It's all here. It's all written down. It's all very clear. There's nothing hidden with God. No hidden agendas. No tactical scheming trying to manipulate you into a corner. I've given the example before of people who don't want to come to church because they're afraid they're going to be manipulated into following God. Well, God doesn't manipulate you. He wouldn't do that. He's not into bait and switch tactics. Come and get a free coffee mug at the bridge this morning. Forget the free coffee mug. Come get Jesus. There's no dysfunction in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would think that alone would speak volumes to the world in which we live. Man, you mean I can actually have a relationship with a person that's honest and clear and open and true? Yes, that's Jesus. I can't even promise you that with me. I won't promise you that with me. I'll do my best. But let's not set the bar too high. I'm just a man. Jesus offers complete transparency without dysfunction. His message, the gospel, is an upfront, unabridged, straightforward invitation to just know Him. To be with Him and to walk with Him. On the other hand, false religion. False religion is never about knowing God. False religion is always about the system itself. It's about the organization. It's about the self-preservation of the structure at any cost. That's religion. That's especially false religion. False religion is all about the framework. It's hollow, it's empty, it's superficial, it's propped up. And it's all about protecting that which has been propped up. And what the Bible tells us... Rick, are you ever going to get back... Revelation 17. We will. What the Bible tells us is that all religion ultimately is going to come together in a global world system. A one world religion that involves and includes everyone. A big, huge coexist bumper sticker that wraps the planet and it will ultimately be crushed desolated in a wretched finale. Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 2, 8, again, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And get that, the elementary principles of the world, it's not just religious attitudes in the church that is of concern. Although 2,000 years of church has invited an awful lot of religion into our family. But that's not just the concern. The warning that we come to in Revelation 17... The warning we get throughout Scripture is against false faith systems and structures in the world. 
And this is where it's bigger than perhaps we thought. When we say religion, we tend to think about faith systems. We think about Christianity. We think about Judaism. Maybe you would consider Islam, you know, a religion. I would say false religion. You talk about all kinds of false religions that are out there. And we think of these kind of framework structures like that. Guess what? Everybody has a religion. Our entire world is filled with religion systems. And organizational frameworks and structures that, that support and prop up behaviors right or wrong. And many of those religions are absolutely false. And the reason that this is so serious is the world is gravitating back to Babel. And this is what we've got to get. Religiously, politically, culturally, Socially, linguistically, the world is gravitating back to Babel linguistically. What are you talking about, Rick? The hottest new language software out there is Babel. It's just unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. An entire company that says, hey, you want to learn a foreign language? Buy Babel software. Babel. I mean, I just... Have, have you seen... What, what's the name of that, that sandwich place? It's like fat something. You guys know the one I'm talking about? I, it's, it's like Fat Charlie's or something like that. And, and I've driven... I, there used to be one down in Oak Harbor and it's gone now. But it's like a sub place. Fat subs or something like that. And I, I remember driving by a sign like that and going, Why would you name a place this? You might as well name it Cholesterol Charlie's. You know? Dennis's quick death, you know, I don't <laughs> Babel software on their website. It says, we believe the sooner you begin to speak a new language, the sooner you'll open yourself up to a world that's bigger and richer and more inspiring. Now, please understand, I'm not against language studies or learning a foreign language. Now, yes, I did get a D one quarter in high school French, but I got over that, <laughs> brought it up to a B. I'm not opposed to language for language as such, but to call a language software Babel? As in Tower of? Turn your Bibles back to Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 11. If you need help finding it. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, first book. So, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And this is all part of where we're heading. It's all critical to understand with where we're going. The world is going back to Babel. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. We're probably about nine, we're probably about a thousand years in at this point. This is a post-flood world. It came about as they journeyed east. They journeyed east because Noah and his family had settled on Mount Ararat there in eastern Turkey. So now they're heading east from there and they settle. The Bible tells us in the plain, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. That's Chaldea. That's the region of Babylon. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, 
Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And that, my friends, is the beginning of religion. Let's build a structure. Let's build a framework for ourselves. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Babel. In the ancient Akkadian language, it's Babile, which means gate to God. In the ancient Chaldean language, the name Babylon is Heaven's Gate. But the point of Babile or or Babylon, Gate to God, Heaven's Gate, is not to get to God, it's to try and pull God down and raise man up. It's Heaven's Gate through which we will pass victoriously as we have made a name for ourselves. Babel was built in defiance of God. Direct defiance. Why do you know that? Because God had commanded after the flood, Genesis 9-7, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply on it. Spread out. I'm giving the whole planet. Spread out on it and be fruitful. And Noah, his son Ham, he had a son named Cush. And Cush fathered a rebel by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod, his name actually means rebellion. Interesting, Nimrod, what a character. Back in Genesis chapter 10, verse 9, says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty, mighty hunter before the Lord. But the word before means in the face of. A mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. A mighty hunter, you might say, against the Lord. This rebel, this Nimrod. And Genesis 10, verse 10 tells us the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He's the ringleader. He's the one who said, let's build this tower. Let's build us a city. Let's make a name for ourselves. And so he began his kingdom with Babel, this mighty rebellion This mighty rebel named Nimrod. And Babel was the beginning of pagan polytheistic religion. That's where it started. We're talking now about the root of religion in the world today. False religion. The Tower of Babel itself was a ziggurat. We used to have a a ziggurat building. We call it the ziggurat building in Mission Hill, California, where I grew up. Interesting building. And it was based on the idea of Babel, basically. But what was found by archaeologists all throughout this region of Mesopotamia. If you were here on Wednesday night, you know Mesopotamia means between the two rivers. Mesopotamia is between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's that region that was Chaldea and Assyria. And in Chaldea, in this plain in Shinar, they built this ziggurat, and archaeologists have unearthed dozens of these huge, rectangular, terraced structures, towers that would go up, and on the very top, either platforms or temples. And either a platform or the temple, they would find, and they have found, signs of the zodiac. 
not for stargazing, but for religious purposes. These towers were officiated by the priests of Babylonian paganism. By the way, the high priest of Babylonian paganism bore a very specific title, Pontifex Maximus. Or you might shorten it to the pontiff. I'm just telling you history. Further ancient records tell us that Nimrod married a woman named Semiramis. She developed and became a leader of what the Bible calls, and we see it in Revelation 17, Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon is a title, it is the name of this ancient pagan religion that Semiramis founded, led up, headed up. In fact, she was known as, she was called the Queen of Heaven. And she's called out for that twice in the Scriptures. And we're going to get more into that bizarre story on Wednesday night. I don't have time this morning to really get into it. But I invite you to come back and listen because it's very weird. Eventually, a guy by the name of Hammurabi. Remember Hammurabi's code? If you remember any history from from school days. Hammurabi, he made Babylon home to over 1,300 deities. Idolatry was rampant. In fact, Babylon is the birthplace of world idolatry. So when we say religion, false religion, paganism, idolatry, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. And it all flowed out of that original location on the plain of Shinar, Babylon. It flowed out from there. You could say Babylon is Satan's capital of the world. What's God's capital of the world? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Babylon. Two great cities. John Corson calls the Bible a tale of two cities. (laughs) Jerusalem and Babylon. Again, more on that Wednesday night. But finally now, go back to Revelation 17, for we come to this chapter. And here we meet Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17, verse 1. And now we can begin our study. (laughs) I say that we all nervously laugh and look at our watches. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Man, there's so much just right there. What I want to do, because we're going to come back and do Revelation 17 in entirety Wednesday night, but I want to, out of these first five verses, just draw out a few quick traits of false religion. So we get that concept down right here in our text, some things that we can draw out and recognize. And the first thing is that false religion, if you're a note taker, write this down. Number one, false religion is personified as a woman. Now, Peace, sisters. Before I come under fire, understand that she's not the only feminine personification of a religious system. It's very interesting to me. There are four feminine personifications of religious systems in the book of Revelation. 
I've mentioned these prior, but let me refresh your memory. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, we meet the first feminine personification of a religious system, and that is the prophetess Jezebel in Thyatira. Remember the letter to Thyatira? And that wicked prophetess Jezebel leading people astray, and I believe it was a real woman, whether her name was Jezebel or not, perhaps it was, but even if not, there was a woman there in Thyatira who's leading this false religion, and it was a system of false religion. She's the first woman who personifies this. Well then, secondly, in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5, we see a second woman who personifies a religious system. She's clothed with the sun, right? You know what we're talking about there? That's Israel. Israel as a religious system. And this is where I tell you a religious system doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be positive. In fact, of these four women, two are negative, two are positive. So the second woman is Israel, nationally and spiritually, simply the religious system that God gave to the Jewish people through Torah law, the law of Moses. And we see that personified, again, as a woman who gives birth to the child, the child being Jesus. The woman is not Mary, the woman is Israel, out of whom Jesus was born. So that's the second personification. The third one is right here in Revelation 17, and it's the great harlot. We'll come back to her in a second. Revelation 19 brings us, however, the fourth woman, the fourth religious system. But mind you, she is pure religion undefiled, personified as a faithful, virginal bride. And that's the church. I'm okay with the church being a somewhat organized religious system as long as the structure doesn't overtake the heart, which is the reason for the structure and not the other way around. We don't build churches to get to the heart. We come straight to the heart of Jesus and out of that, things will organize. Fellowships will grow. It's not a bad thing. False religion is a bad thing. Now, the reason I mention this, aside from the obviousness of it, that this trait, this character trait, that false religion here is personified as a woman, I believe there's a spiritual reason that we see in Revelation religion in four different forms personified as four different women. Mary Elizabeth Braddon, popular 19th century Victorian novelist, I'm sure all of you have read her works, she said... How our churches, how are our churches beautified, our sick tended, our poor fed, our children taught and cared for and civilized? Do you think the masculine element goes much for these things? No. As they were the last at the foot of the cross, so they come first to the altar. Interesting. Women have always tended, we've we've talked about this somewhat recently, that women have always tended to be more spiritually inclined than us guys. Ladies, you need to understand for us guys to become godly men, we really need to press into the Lord. It is not necessarily natural for us as as it is more for our sisters who are more naturally spiritual. We, We have to kind of develop that, learn it, be led into it, grow in spiritual understanding. And the Lord does that in godly men, but godly women, it's a little more obvious. 
So women have always tended to be more spiritually inclined than us guys. And by the way, any of you guys, if that bothers you, if that offends you, man up and get spiritual. Simple answer. But these four women are instructive for us. And brothers and sisters both, listen closely. The woman Jezebel is out of order. She's out of order. She is an immoral, infiltrating idolatrous, and she is headed for tribulation because she's trying to lead up the whole thing. She's out of order. Picture of a spiritual woman out of order, and she is false religion. Religion goes sideways. Listen, please hear my heart. Hear what the Word says. Religion tends to go sideways when all the leadership rests with the women and the men stay home and watch the game. And by the way, in a church where women take all the lead, I have seen the men are usually okay with that. Oh, good. We don't have to do it. We don't have to clean the kitchen. We don't have to throw away all the boxes of Chinese food and wash the dishes and get them in the... We don't have to do that. Oh, the ladies will do it? Fine. Cool. Just let me know if you need my help. I'll be back over here. Jezebel is out of order. The woman Israel. Picture of a woman under the covering of God. When she stays under the covering of God, she is protected, she is loved, she is provided for. When she comes out from under the covering of God, there's trouble. The woman Israel we see in tribulation in Revelation chapter 12 is under His protection, flees into the wilderness. Where does she go? To a place prepared for her because a woman who is under the cover of God is provided for and protected. Skip woman number three just for a second. And go to the fourth woman, the bride. Picture of a woman who loves the appearing of her groom. And she waits clothed in righteousness and purity, humility. And she, of all the women who personify a religion, is the most satisfied and the most fulfilled. Waiting for Jesus. Clothed in purity. She's the one who understands that men and women have God-ordained roles in this world, in our lives. As well as in the church, there are God-ordained roles and positions for men and women. I don't speak this as a man, I speak it as a student of the Bible. And in these roles, we're not talking about hierarchies, we're not talking about pecking orders, because there is neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus, right? Remember that verse? There's a oneness among us, a unity among us, male and female. No one is ahead of the other. In fact, Jesus said, call no one your master. There's only one master. That's Jesus. So we're all in this together, but we function with different responsibilities. And this is what our world and the false religious systems do not understand. We have different responsibilities in the church as a fellowship and even as people before the Lord. And when we accept those roles and those responsibilities, we are most satisfied, both men and women. When we reject those roles, we pass them off to the other sex, we become dissatisfied and grumpy and detached and relationship suffers for it. I love my sisters. Ladies, you have such unique capacities and functions and things you do so much better than me. Things that you call me to. Spiritual sensitivity, as I said before, I do not have, but I learn from my sisters. I need you. But sisters, you need your brothers. 
And you need the men to stand up and be leaders in the home and in the church. You need the men to do what they were designed to do as well. And I've told you before, part of the reason God has called men to lead in the church is because if He didn't, we wouldn't. He creates roles and positions that are best for us, that we need to grow in the kind of relationship that Jesus wants us to have. Father knows best. Just leave it at that. And when things get out of godly order, when roles are reversed, when gender is rejected, as we're seeing happen all over society, when created design is disregarded or defied, the result is bitterness, vitriol, discontentment, dissatisfaction, blasphemy, and the result ultimately is desolation. Enter the great harlot. The great harlot. And by the way, Jezebel is a little girl in pigtails compared to the mother of all harlots. Look again at verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. We need not guess what the many waters is describing. If you look down in verse 15 of the same chapter, he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So there's an example of where John gives us the exact description of the picture of the sign that he's seeing here. What is this? With well, the many waters, it's the nations of the world. It's the peoples of the world. And this religious system is going to, at a day not far off, impose her will and ride on the back of the world during the tribulation. She's going to ride on everybody. And note the kings who are with her in verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Second thing to note, not only is false religion personified as a woman, but secondly, false religion is spiritually stupefying. Spiritually stupefying, what do you mean? It's not about clear-headed wisdom, it's about intoxication. False religion feels good going down, Feels good as it begins to alter soberness. Feels good as it makes you relax. You know, it's, it's all about the experience. Man, be careful, even in the church, when the fellowship is all about experience and not about the Word. False religion is like that. Jeremiah 51 verse 7 says, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. That's what false religion does. Ultimately, what begins is good feeling, (laughs) good vibrations. Have you noticed how much the world is talking about karma now? Karma's back. That's big in our culture. Karma and universalism and the universe speaking and doing things. And oh, let's just all hold hands together. And this whole attitude is stupefying, it is intoxicating, and Karl Marx was partially right when he said religion is the opiate of the masses. False religion is. False religion is an opiate. Compare that again to what we said about a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is walking in the light. Sober, alert, eyes wide open, clear thinking, wisdom-minded, 
Jesus. No tricking, no subtlety. Just, hey, the light is on. Walk with me, he would say. But the false religion is, let's get stoned. In a spiritual sense. Let's numb the senses. Let, let's, let's kind of enjoy this strange, stupefying thing. And note verse 3, He carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Wow. Okay, again, a picture we're going to get into more in midweek, but I'll tell you quickly right now, the seven heads are a city on seven hills. Where would that be? That's Rome. That's Rome. Throughout all history, whether looked at negatively or positively, Rome is the city on seven hills. So Rome is being, I believe, referred to here. Rome will be the religious hub of Antichrist's temporary kingdom. The political capital will be Babylon. So Babylon there, right back at the plain of Shinar, right back to the beginning. Babylon, that's the political capital. Rome, the religious hub, the religious capital. It says the woman is riding this beast with this persona, the seven heads and, and ten horns. Well, the ten horns are political leaders under the thumb of Antichrist. Again, we'll sh- I'll show you why midweek. So right now you just got to take it on faith. <laughs> but political leaders. A- and note this, however, the woman rides the beast. The woman is riding Rome, she's riding Babylon, she's riding over the political and religious capitals of the world because, thirdly, false religion plays to power. Always does. It's not only spiritually stupefying, but it plays to power. False religion is enticed by and entices power. False religion loves power. And power is drawn, is lured to false religion. It's power through forced submission. It is powered by subjugating and stupefying people for the sake of pride and position and supremacy. By contrast, what did Jesus say? Matthew twenty three eleven: The greatest among you shall be your servant. Which truly would make Jim Hutchinson our senior pastor. Whoever exalts himself. And see, he didn't even like the fact that I said that. Humble servants don't want anybody to know what they're doing. They just want to do it. Leave me alone. I'm serving the Lord, not you, so shut up and leave me alone. (laughs) Jim wouldn't say that to me. He might give me a look. Okay, let it go, Rick. So, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. See, that's the Jesus way. That's pure and undefiled religion. Going after widows and orphans who cannot do anything to help you, so you're helping them just because you love Jesus. And you're undefiled by the things of the world. You're unstained in the world just because you love Jesus. That's His way. That's true, pure, undefiled religion. But false religion loves power. And wants people to stay drunk. And I just got to say, there should be no place for power plays in the church. It happens. Man, I've done it. Served with leaders who are hungry for power because they didn't have it anywhere else. Shouldn't be in the church. 
standard of Christ, the standard for His kingdom, is always the elevation of the humble and the lowly and the servant-hearted. That's where greatness is. Psalm 138 verse 4 says, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to You, O Lord, when they have heard the words of Your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly. But the haughty He knows from afar. And see, that's the thing. In the Millennial Kingdom, the kings will exalt the name of the Lord. You know what makes Christianity as a religious system different than any other? It is not about the system. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Him. So if this church fell apart tomorrow... I still have Jesus. You know, I, I don't have time for this, but I, I saw uh, Avengers Endgame. You want to know how it ends? <laughs> I won't say. But I saw it with the kids the other night. We saw the, the last Avengers. But if you saw it before, and it's been out for a while now, so this is not a spoiler, but Infinity War, which was the movie that came before this, half of all the population of the universe is wiped out. Half is just gone. And the beginning of this new movie, again, not giving anything away, but the beginning of the movie is how they're trying to figure out how to deal with this massive loss. How do you move on? How do you go forward from something like that? Listen, how does anybody move on or go forward from tragedy if you don't have Jesus to go to? You lose everything? What do you have before you? Nothing. How do you live like that? My church split and divided, and I didn't know where to go. Go to Jesus. So you won't lose Him. And that's why, while I am so thankful for this religious system, this structure, the Bridge Christian Fellowship, I'm so thankful for you, I'm thankful for what God has done here, but if we lost it all tomorrow, we would not lose Jesus Christ. He's the point. He's our focus. And He's the reason we're all together this morning because we coalesce around Him rather than around the system itself. The false religion is its own power rather than the power of God. It's about the people or, or about those who are leading the people, in charge of the people. It is, as I said, enticed by and entices power. And by the way, Revelation 17 and 18 gives us another very interesting uh, piece of information about false religion. Because Revelation 17 is the downfall of religious Babylon. Revelation 18 is the downfall of commercial Babylon. Both both given in great detail. Why? Because number four, false religion craves commercialism. It's all about the Benjamins. Not the Benjamin Shooks. It's all about... The money, it's all about the cash. It's religious and commercial Babylon have this symbiotic relationship in the selling of religion and in the making of money as a product. Religion is a product for amassing riches. Have we seen that in the church? Oh, yeah, to the shame of churches that go down that road. Look at verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. All this description of the purple and scarlet and gold, precious stones, pearls, it it, it is specific, I believe. It's describing, it's giving a picture, again, more midweek on that, but on the surface at least, look at this. Man, what does this tell us about what the woman 
offers riches, glory, wealth. And even in the tribulation, people are buying it. They see the the wealth. They want the wealth. This woman is making the big bucks. False religion goes in for that. Beware the pastor, the priest, the leader, the church, or the religious system that tries to sell Christ. You know He can't be bought. You cannot purchase a relationship with Jesus. He, by His blood, bought you the right to enter that relationship. False religion is all about commercialism, craves it, desires it. The church, the pure bride of Christ, is not about making money. It's not in the business of making money. In fact, it's not a business at all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, We are not like the many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We're not peddling anything. I'm not trying to sell you on something. Man, take it or leave it. It's free in the name of Jesus. His grace, His offer of salvation. Free. That's between you and Him. Take it. I have twice in the last, interesting, the last two weeks, twice, where someone has handed me money for a service rendered. And I, in the Spirit, have to just say, don't give that to me. If you want to give it, fine. Put it in the box. Oh, see, Rick, there, you're making money for the church. No, no. Because we are not selling a product here. We are sharing the love of Christ, which, as I said, is full and free. But we do recognize this about money. Money has two simple values to it for a follower of Jesus. Are you ready for these? Number one, it develops faith in God's provision. I believe tithing is a great way to develop that faith. I really do. And I know many people here do not tithe, and I know some do. Well, I give. I'm not talking about giving. I'm talking about tithing, which is 10%. That's what tithing is. You can't call it tithing if it's not 10%. Tithing is you give 10% of your gross income. That's tithing. Well, I don't like that. You know, that's okay. I don't even know who gives what. So I can talk about this freely. Tithing, offering, giving financially to a church fellowship is all about developing faith. It's not about propping up the system or the structure. God will take care of that. And that's why we don't force it or talk. We don't talk about money very often at the bridge unless it comes up in the scriptures. We don't address it. We don't have special offerings. And we put the boxes on the back wall because it's between you and God. We want, my desire is that in my own life, that my offerings to the Lord develop faith. That I'm doing it. And as I, and I do this every time I drop it in the box, I pray. Father, use this for your glory. Use this for whatever you need. And there are times where I'm holding on to that check a little tight. (laughs) (laughs) To your glory, Lord. And develop my faith. Help me to trust you. You're going to provide. You're going to take care of this. So that's one reason that we recognize money has value. The second one is to cultivate our generosity. With every offering. You know what's interesting? People who tithe also tend to give generously to other things above and beyond the tithe. People who give very little or who are real stingy with it don't give to very many things at all. 
or they'll give to one thing. I have a compassion child. I've told you this before. We started supporting a compassion child back in the late 80s. And I remember telling myself, well, that's good enough. That's my giving. Yeah. My pastor would talk about tithing, and I'd sit there going, I have a compassion child. That's, that's good enough, right? Until I figured out it was like 0.05% of my income. So that's not very generous. It increases faith. It develops generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes, He became poor. So that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And that's not financially rich. That's spiritually rich, which is vastly better because it has eternal, it's an eternal investment. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a hilarious giver. Cheerful giver is hilarious giver. It's hilarion in the Greek. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. For what, Paul? For every good deed. You know what Paul's attitude was? God will bless your tithing so that through that blessing you can give more. Develops generosity. False religion. False religion just wants the money. False religion doesn't care what it does to you. How it increases faith. How it expands generosity. False religion just wants to ride high with the gold and precious stones and pearls on the back of the beast dressed in scarlet and, and beautiful clothing. That's false religion. And we see it all over the world. And something else is shocking here. And, and hang with me just a few more minutes. Something else is shocking. Number five, false religion embraces Sexual immorality. I'm, I'm giving you some things that if you've been keeping up with this list, you can look around and you can know pretty quickly if, if a church fellowship, if an organization, if a system of any kind is a false religious system, it embraces sexual immorality. The harlot, the word harlot there in verse 1 and 5 is pornes. It is a feminine singular noun and it means either prostitute or idolatrous. Because... Biblically, idolatry and prostitution go hand in hand. They're one and the same. So you have pornes, and then the word immorality used in verses 2 and 4 is pornuo. There is pornography all over false religion. The pornes, the the false uh, religious idolatrous, the pornuo, which is sexual immorality, we've defined before, we have to be clear about it, sexual immorality is any kind of sexual behavior outside that of one man and one woman in a godly marriage. That is sexual morality. Anything else outside of that is sexual immorality. A heterosexual couple living together outside of marriage, that is sexual immorality. That's what's being talked about here. A homosexual couple. Sexual immorality. It's what's being talked about here. Gender bending, confusing, changing, strange, bizarre things. And listen, I hate dealing with this. Cheryl has heard me say more often than not, I hate living in a culture where as a pastor I have to address despicable things. People might say, ooh, he said despicable. Yeah, it is. I don't want to sit here and talk about sexual immorality. I don't want to share about things like this. But we are way past heterosexual immorality today. We are way beyond that. We're even beyond homosexuality in this culture. It is now about, listen, it's about the right to choose your gender 
Whatever gender with which a person wants to identify, what does that do? It approves any sexual behavior in which you'd like to engage. If I can choose my gender, I can do whatever I want. I have no sexual boundaries whatsoever. And by the way, with that, if you don't give hearty approval, regardless of how aberrant the behavior is, you're an intolerant, mean-spirited, hard-hearted bigot. What happens here at the end when this world religion comes together? It is bathed in sexual immorality. I was listening here when uh, Jim was doing his reading, the word translated immorality in NASB, what Jim was reading is fornication. So it is, the word in, indicates a sexual immorality. And notice the use of words like blasphemous in verse 3. Abominations, used twice in verses 4 and verse 5. By the way, abominations is betelugma. It's a weird, ugly word, betelugma. And it means something that to God is so foul and detestable. And it usually has to do with idolatry. Sexual immorality has an idolatrous component to us. And the reason why... God is so opposed to sexual immorality of any kind is its link to, it draws a person into flesh and it links a person to idolatry. Harlotry, as I said, in the Bible is synonymous with idolatry and both center in on the flesh and draw you away from the Spirit. And the more you're drawn away from the Spirit, guess what you're drawn away from? A relationship with God. And that's why He hates it so much. Because it's a flesh-feeding thing. And it brings all the attention inward and downward. John Walvoord says the symbolism of spiritual adultery is most often used of a people who outwardly carry the name of God while actually worshiping and serving other gods. That's false religion. And sexual immorality runs rampant in false religion. Compare that to how the church is supposed to look in the New Testament. The fourth woman, virginal. Pure, clothed in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. That's the church. Or Revelation 19, verse 7, let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I'll give you one more and we're done. False religion. False religion allures by mystery. Mystery. Verse 5. On her forehead, a name was written. If your Bible says a mystery, line through the word a, it is not there. It is not even implied. What it should read, on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth False religion allures by mystery and the greatest false religion in all history that has its fingers throughout the world even today is Mystery Babylon the Great. She is the temptress, the enticing root of all that is religiously monstrous on the earth. And again, it doesn't even have to present itself as religion to be false religion. 
It's whatever system or structure someone is engaged in, believes in. It's a lifestyle. This is my, these are my people. It's a community. You hear about the LGBT community? That's a religion. For those involved in the LGBTQ community, that is their religion. It's their religious system. It's got a framework. It's how they behave. It's what they put their lives into. It's what they, it's the message that they share. That's a religion. And there are all kinds of those that are all over in this world. Man, along with the many traits we have talked about this morning, and there are more you can draw out, what we realize is that this is global false religion that's being described in Revelation 17. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The world is rushing back to Babel. We see it all around us. It's not getting less religious, as I said, it's getting more. And in this, some churches still think if we can walk like the world and talk like the world, we can attract the world. It is utter foolishness. If we just involve people in our system, if we can just attract people to our structure and our organization, somehow our organization will continue to grow and thrive and survive. And our organization is not the point. Jesus is the point. And a relationship with Him is what it's all about. But ultimately, ultimately here at the end, the world turns on religion. Turns against the very religion that so brazenly rides its back during the tribulation. You see, people will use a system, an organization, a structure... People will use religion as long as it suits them, but if it's just a system and there's no one at the heart, eventually they're going to throw it out and move on to something else. And in the end, in the end, listen, false religion is just a harlot. False religion is a harlot. Used up, unloved, abused, tossed out. Look at verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. That's where religion's going. And those very ones who invite in and who lure in and who are attracted by false religion will themselves crush religion in the end because they don't really want it. And that's the sorrowful thing about a church that says, let's get rid of all rules and just accept everyone, however they are, whatever they do, with with no call to any kind of change. We are tolerant of everything and everyone, and you know what will happen? Everything and everyone will come into that and will eat it up and will destroy it. Because people have no use for religion. Religion in this world is a harlot. And ultimately, guess who is behind the crushing of religion? Verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Ultimately, God is behind the crushing of religion. Because He has no use for it. 
You know what God has a use for? You. Me. He loves you. Jesus simply loves you. And doesn't want you to practice religion unless it is an outflow of your love for Him. Remember again what James said, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. You know what that is? That's grace. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. You know what that is? That's truth. Grace and truth, John 1.17, were realized through Jesus Christ. That's why He came. To establish a relationship with you and with me, Jesus wants to be known by you and realized by all of us in grace and in truth. And that is pure and undefiled. Well, Father, I pray for your protection against a religious mindset here in our fellowship at the bridge. I pray for your bride. I pray for the church, Lord, throughout the world, the pure and the virginal. I pray that we will, as we sang earlier, like a bride waiting for our groom, Lord, that that we will be ready for you because we choose to be clothed in righteousness and purity, because we choose to reject the false religious systems of this world and to live with our eyes on Jesus. Crying out to Jesus, talking to You, Lord Jesus, walking with You, Lord Jesus, aware of You in our day-to-day lives. We get in the car, Lord, jump in with us so we can talk on the way to work. When we're moving through the day and we have decisions to make, Lord, inform our decisions by the relationship we have with You. Father, it's my prayer. We sang this also this morning. More of You. I want more of You. More of You, Lord Jesus. And I pray that that would be the mentality that that completely infiltrates our entire fellowship. And we don't worry about this church structure. We just love each other and we love You. And let You take care of everything else. Father, that's That's the best way for us to live this life in preparation for the next, isn't it? So, we declare our love for you this morning. And I pray if there's anyone who's got love lost, or if there's anyone who is uncertain about this relationship, continue, Father, to speak to every heart and draw us near to you. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our love. Amen.